Disc 16 The Plague On the 4th of July, 1982, a gay man called Terry Higgins died in St. Thomas's Hospital in central London. He was 37 and one of the first British victims of AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome that weakens the body's natural defences and is passed through a virus, HIV. A group of his friends set up a small charity in a flat, the Terence Higgins Trust, to spread the word about AIDS among gay men, encouraging the use of condoms, since it is spread by blood and body fluid contact, and offering support for others. Though the disease had undoubtedly been present in the late 70s, it was first identified in California in 1981, when gay men started to turn up in medical centres complaining of a rare lung disease and a form of skin cancer until then confined to the elderly. Within a year, hundreds of cases had been found, many deaths were occurring, and it was clear that the vast majority were among homosexual men, though other groups began to be affected, including some women, intravenous drug users, Haitians, and in Uganda, villagers suffering from a mysterious and deadly ailment they called slim. The first target in America was the gay bathhouses and saunas, known for promiscuous, wild and unprotected sex. These had grown up in San Francisco and Los Angeles, and in New York too, as gay men migrated across America during the 60s and 70s to find the most liberal and liberated culture available. A similar shift had happened in Britain after the legalisation of homosexual acts by men. As in America, gay liberation was confined to the most liberal areas of the largest cities only, in this case mainly London. The gay scenes of Manchester, Edinburgh and other towns followed slightly later. Gay clubs, gay discos and gay saunas, the latter really places for as much promiscuous sex as possible, flourished. Men came south and made up for lost time. Something close to a climate of sexual frenzy developed a frenzy which would later be imitated by heterosexual youngsters on foreign holidays and resorts. After the years of rationing, the sweetie shop was open. Through the 70s, amid the political and economic grime, a street culture of excess flourished. The excess in clothing, music and football violence has already been discussed. It was accompanied for many by a breaking of sexual restraint, the arrival of the freely available pill for heterosexuals and the new climate of legality for homosexuals. If there was optimism around in these years, it was personal, new freedoms that allowed respite from the surrounding climate of national failure. So, the arrival of AIDS came at a particularly cruel time. Just when homosexuals felt the centuries of repression and shame were finally over, along came a deadly and mysterious disease to destroy their new way of life. For social conservatives, this was exactly the point. AIDS was the medical and moral consequence of promiscuous and unnatural sexual behaviour. As you sow, so shall you reap, almost literally. And thus the scene was set for a confrontation between contending moral philosophies that had been at war since the 60s. Gay culture was briefly on the retreat. Clubs closed. Clerics drew conclusions. Though gay men were at the cutting edge of the AIDS crisis, it had wider implications. It was not only among homosexuals that promiscuity had become more common. In many ways, gay culture had drawn straight culture along in its wake. So, for traditionalists, there was a message to the whole society, the possibility of a turn away from the new liberalism. Except, in the end, it did not turn out quite as anyone expected. Gay organisations sprung up to spread the safe sex message very quickly. The Terence Higgins Trust became a national institution and is now one of the biggest sexual health charities in Europe, with a staff of 300 plus 800 volunteers. The establishment turned out to be far more sympathetic than might have been expected, from Princess Diana opening the first AIDS-specific ward at Middlesex Hospital in 1987, to Thatcherite ministers talking about condoms. It was a cultural turning point of a kind, and certainly a national education. In the early days, the media fell prone to we're all doomed panics and the moral condemnation of homosexuals as unnatural creatures, getting what they deserved. James Anderton, the chief constable of police in Greater Manchester, talked of homosexuals swirling about in a human cesspit of their own making. 
His language was widely condemned, but many millions of Britons, mainly but not exclusively older people, are likely to have agreed with his condemnation of buggery and other abominable practices. Dislike of homosexuality was, and still is, strongly rooted. Alongside this was a prudishness about sex generally, which meant early discussion of how AIDS was transmitted was so vague it simply was not understood. Tabloid newspapers described the gay plague, which could, according to rumours passed on by newspapers, be variously caught from lavatory seats, kisses, handshakes, communion wine, or sharing a restaurant fork with an infected person. In the early 80s, the BBC was predicting that 70,000 people in England and Wales would die within four years. Nearly 25 years later, the total death toll is 13,000. And that, by the end of the century, there won't be one family that isn't touched in some way by the disease. The BBC science programme Horizon had led public awareness of AIDS in the early days, but in 1986, its film about gay men's sex lives and how the disease was actually transmitted was considered so close to the bone that it was banned, and the negatives solemnly destroyed. Yet across the media, as throughout the political world, attitudes changed rapidly. The same newspapers that spoke about buggers getting their just desserts now enthusiastically promoted AIDS awareness. The homophobic jibes continued, but with less self-confidence. Campaigns for abstinence or the reclaiming of gays back into heterosexual life, which have been common among church groups in America, barely touched more secular Britain. Gay pride parades, which began as angry, edgy affairs in the 80s, slowly became mainstream to the point where politicians rushed to be associated with them. None of this was expected when AIDS first arrived. In retrospect, part of the shift in attitude happened not in spite of AIDS, but because of it. The public health crisis jolted the way sexuality was discussed. There needed to be a new frankness. This wounded, if not fatally, the grand British tradition of titter and snigger. As it became clear that AIDS could be caught from infected needles and blood transfusions, and occasionally through heterosexual sex, the gay stigma was diluted. Indeed, by rapidly changing sexual practices, gay men were for a time ahead of the rest of the population. Coping with AIDS was one of the most effective public information and healthcare stories of modern times. The turn came in 1986, when Norman Fowler, the Health Secretary, and Willie Whitelaw, Mrs Thatcher's Deputy Prime Minister, were told to create a national public awareness campaign that would be properly effective. Two more conventional and straight men it would be hard to imagine. Fowler's main concern was family values, and he was quickly lobbied by church groups, MPs and others to send out a traditionalist moral message of abstinence. He did nothing of the kind. The advertising agency TBWA was commissioned to produce a campaign, Don't Die of Ignorance, which would shock the country into changing sexual habits. They came up with an iceberg image and a gravel-voiced commentary by the actor John Hurt, which began with the words... There is now a dreadful disease. Every single household in Britain received a clear and, for the time, explicit leaflet. Over the next few years, £75 million was allocated to the campaign. Broadly speaking, it worked. New diagnoses of AIDS, running at more than 3,000 in 1985, fell dramatically over the next few years, staying stable until 1999, when they began to rise again because of heterosexual cases, mostly connected to Africa, which was undergoing a much worse, indeed genuinely catastrophic, pandemic. Because of the wider use of condoms, all sexually transmitted infections fell in the same period, so that cases of syphilis were just a tenth of their pre-AIDS level by the end of the decade. Fowler said later that all the research on his campaign showed that the public saw it, that they understood it, that they remembered the campaign, and most of all, it actually did change habits. Britain's figures on the fall of new cases were better than almost any other countries. The Enemy Within If the first Thatcher government had been dominated by monetarism and the Falklands War, the second would be dominated by the miners' strike. This was the longest such strike in British history, one of the most bloody and tragic industrial disputes of modern times, and resulted in the total defeat of the miners, followed by the virtual end of deep coal mining in Britain. For Thatcher, the lessons were even bigger. What the strike's defeat established was that Britain could not be made ungovernable by the fascist left, 
Marxists wanted to defy the law of the land in order to defy the laws of economics. They failed, and in doing so demonstrated just how mutually dependent the free economy and a free society really are. It was a confrontation which was peculiarly soaked in history on all sides. For the Tories, it was essential revenge after the miners' humiliation of Heath, a score they had long been waiting to settle. Margaret Thatcher did indeed speak of the enemy within, as compared to Galtieri, the enemy without. For thousands of militant members of the National Union of Mine Workers, it was their last chance to end decades of pit closures and save communities under mortal threat. For their leader, Arthur Scargill, it was an attempt to pull down the government itself and win a class war. As we shall see, he was not interested in the detail of pay packets or in a pit-by-pit -pit discussion of which coal mines were economic. He was determined to force the government, in Thatcher's contemptuous but accurate words, to pay for mud to be mined rather than see a single job lost. The government had prepared more carefully than Scargill. An early dispute with the NUM had been settled quickly because the battlefield was not yet ready. For two years, the National Coal Board had been working with the Energy Secretary, Nigel Lawson, to pile up supplies of coal at the power stations. Stocks had steadily grown, while consumption and production both fell. After the Toxteth and Brixton riots, the police had been retrained and equipped with full riot gear, without which, ministers later confessed, they would have been unable to beat the miners' pickets. Meanwhile, Thatcher had appointed a Scottish-born American, Ian McGregor, to run the NCB. He had a fierce reputation as a union buster in the United States and had been brought back to Britain to run British Steel, where closures and 65,000 job cuts had won him the title Mac the Knife. He was briefly idolised by the Prime Minister, rather as she admired John King, later Lord King, who had turned round British Airways in the same period, sacking 23,000 staff, about 40% of the total, and turning the lossmaker into a hugely profitable business. These were her tough, no-nonsense men, a refreshing change from the cabinet, though later she would turn against MacGregor, appalled by his lack of political nous. MacGregor's plan was to cut the workforce of 202,000 by 44,000 in two years, then take another 20,000 jobs out. Twenty pits would be closed to begin with. Though elderly and rich, he was no suave PR man. When MacGregor turned out to visit mines, he was pelted with flower bombs, abused and, on one occasion, knocked to the ground. Arthur Scargill seemed to be relishing the fight as much as the Prime Minister. We last glimpsed him in the miners' confrontation with Heath, when he had led the flying pickets at Saltley Coke Depot, and then tangling with Kinnock during Labour's civil war. Some sense of his unique mix of revolutionary simplicity and wit comes from an exchange he had with the Welsh miners' leader, Di Francis, when he called to ask for flying pickets to come to Birmingham and help at the Coke Depot. Francis asked when they were needed. Tomorrow, Saturday. I paused. But wheels are playing Scotland at Cardiff Arms Park. There was a silence, and Scargill replied, But die, the working class are playing the ruling class at Saltley. Many found Scargill inspiring. Many others found him frankly scary. He had been a communist and retained strong Marxist views, and a penchant for denouncing anyone who disagreed with him as a traitor. Some found a megalomaniac atmosphere at his Barnsley headquarters, already known as Arthur's Castle. Kim Howells, then a communist and later a new Labour minister, visited him there and was taken aback to find him sitting at this Mussolini desk with a great space in front of it, and behind him a huge painting of himself on the back of a lorry, posed like Lenin, urging picketing workers in London to overthrow the ruling class. Howells thought anyone who could put up a painting like that was nuts, and returned to express his fears to the Welsh miners. And, of course, the South Wales executive almost to a man agreed with me, but then they said, he's the only one we've got, see, boy. The left has decided. Scargill had indeed been elected by a vast margin and had set about turning the NUM's once moderate executive into a reliably militant group. His vice-president, Mick McGahey, was a veteran Scottish communist who, though wiser than Scargill, was no moderate, and the union's general secretary, Peter Heathfield, was well to the left in union politics. Scargill had been ramping up the rhetoric for some time. Sooner or later, our members will have to stand and fight, he said repeatedly, not on the traditional issue of wages, but on the very future of coal mining in Britain. He told the NUM conference in 1982, If we do not save our pits from closure, then all our other struggles become meaningless. 
Protection of the industry is my first priority because without jobs, all our other claims lack substance and become mere shadows. Without jobs, our members are nothing. Given what was about to happen to his members' jobs as a result of the strike, there is a black irony in those words. By adopting a position that no pits should be closed on economic grounds, even if coal was exhausted, more investment would always find more coal, and from his point of view, the losses were irrelevant. He made sure confrontation would not be avoided. Exciting, witty Arthur Scargill brought coal mining to a close in Britain far faster than would have happened had the NUM been led by some prevaricating, dreary, old-style union hack. The NUM votes, which allowed the strike to start, covered both pay and closures. But from the start, Scargill emphasised the closures. To strike to protect jobs, particularly other people's jobs in other people's villages and other counties' pits, gave the confrontation an air of nobility and sacrifice which a mere wages dispute would not have enjoyed. Neil Kinnock, the new Labour leader, the son and grandson of Welsh miners, found it impossible to forthrightly condemn the aims of the dispute, despite his growing detestation of Scargill. As we shall see, it cost him dear. With his air-chopping, flaming rhetoric... Scargill was a formidable organiser and a conference hall speaker on Kinnock's level. Yet not even he would be able to persuade every part of the industry to strike. Earlier ballots had shown consistent majorities against striking. In Nottinghamshire, 72% of the area's 32,000 miners voted against striking. The small coal fields of South Derbyshire and Leicestershire were against too. Even in South Wales, half the NUM lodges failed to vote for a strike. Overall, of the 70,000 miners who were balloted in the run-up to the dispute, 50,000 had voted to keep working. This is crucial to understanding what happened. Scargill felt he could not win a national ballot, so he decided on a rolling series of locally called strikes, coalfield by coalfield. Yorkshire, then Scotland, Derbyshire and South Wales. These strikes would merely be approved by the National Union. It was a domino strategy. The regional strikes would add up to a national strike without a national vote. But Scargill needed to be sure the dominoes would fall. He used the famous flying pickets from militant areas and pits to shut down less militant ones. Angry miners were sent in coaches and convoys of cars to close working pits and the coke depots vital hubs of the coal economy. Without the pickets, who to begin with rarely needed to use violence to achieve their end, far fewer pits would have come out. But after scenes of physical confrontation around Britain, by April 1984, four miners in five were on strike. To Scargill's horror, however, other unions refused to come out in sympathy, robbing him of a rerun of the 1929 general strike. It became clear that the NUM had made other historic errors. Kinnock was not the only one from a mining background baffled as to why Scargill had opted to strike in the spring, when the demand for energy was relatively low. The stocks at the power stations were not running down at anything like the rate the NUM had hoped, as confidential briefings from the power workers confirmed. It seemed the government could indeed sit this one out. There were huge set-piece confrontations with riot-equipped police bust up from London or down from Scotland, Yorkshire to Kent, Wales to Yorkshire generally used outside their own areas to avoid mixed loyalties. It was as if the country had been taken over by historical reenactments of civil war battles, the sealed knot society run rampant. Aggressive picketing was built into the fabric of the strike. Old county and regional rivalries flared up, Lancashire men against Yorkshire men, South Wales miners in Nottinghamshire. The Nottinghamshire miners turned out to be critical, Without them, the power stations, even with the mix of nuclear and oil and the careful stockpiling, might have begun to run short, and the government would have been in deep trouble. Using horses, baton charges and techniques learned from the street riots of the previous few years, the police defended the working miners with a determination which delighted the government and alarmed many others. A battle at Orgreave in South Yorkshire was particularly brutal. As the strike went on, macho policing was matched by violence from striking miners. Scargill could count on almost fanatical loyalty to the Union in towns and villages across the land. 
Miners gave up their cars, sold their furniture, saw their children suffer, and indeed lost materially all they had in the cause of solidarity. Food parcels arrived from other parts of Britain, from France, and even from Russia. There was a gritty courage and selflessness in mining communities most of the rest of the country could barely understand. The other side of the coin was a desperation to win which turned ugly. A taxi driver taking a working miner to work in Wales was killed when a block of concrete was dropped on his car. There were murderous threats to scabs and their families. When Norman Willis, the affable general secretary of the TUC, spoke at one miners' meeting, a noose was dangled above his head. Violence relayed to the rest of the country on the nightly news, followed eventually by legal action on the part of Yorkshire miners complaining that they had been denied a ballot, put the NUM on the back foot. Scargill's decision to take money from Libya found him slithering from any moral high ground he had once occupied, though some believe this was part of a security service sting operation to discredit the NUM leadership. As with Galtieri, Thatcher was lucky in her enemies. Slowly, month by month, the strike began to crumble, and miners began to trail back to work, first in tens and scores, then in their hundreds, then in their thousands. There were many crises on the way, a possible dock strike, a vote to strike by pit safety officers and overseers, which would have shut down the working pits too, and was promptly bought off, and problems with local courts too overloaded to prosecute strikers. But by January 1985, ten months after they had first come out, strikers were returning to work at the rate of some 2,500 a week. By the end of February, more than half the NUM's membership was back at work. In some cases, they marched back behind pipes and drums, weeping. Scargill's gamble had gone catastrophically wrong. He has been compared to a First World War general, a donkey leading lions to the slaughter. There is something in the comparison. The political force ranged against the miners in 1984 was entirely different from the ill-prepared Heath administration they had defeated ten years earlier. A shrewder, non-revolutionary leader would not have chosen that fight at that time, or, having done so, would have found a compromise after the first months of the dispute. Today, there are a handful of thousand miners left of the 200,000 who went on strike. Scargill himself lingers on as an official of an international miners' union, because he has run out of miners to lead at home. He might once have dreamed the revolution would raise a statue to him. If anyone does, it should be the Green Lobby, in a spirit of irony. An industry whose origins went back to the Middle Ages, and which made Britain a great industrial power, but which was always dangerous, dirty and polluting, lay down and died. For Conservatives, indeed, for the majority of people, Scargill and his lieutenants, were fighting parliamentary democracy and were an enemy which had to be defeated. But the miners of Kent, Derbyshire, Fife and Yorkshire, Wales and Lancashire were nobody's enemy, just abnormally hard-working traditional people worried about losing their jobs and overly loyal to their wild and incompetent leader. Whirlybird Madness it is a reasonably safe rule in politics that the big fights are about big issues. The great Westland helicopter crisis that broke over the Thatcher government in the winter of 1984-85 was, on the face of it, a balmy thing for ministers to fight about. Should a European consortium of aerospace manufacturers or an American defence company working with an Italian firm be favoured to take over a struggling West Country helicopter maker? Who cared? This was a government that boasted about its refusal to micromanage industry, yet the fight about the future of a Yeovil manufacturer cost two cabinet ministers their jobs and led at one point to Margaret Thatcher herself doubting whether she would last the day as Prime Minister. It pitted her against the only other member of her government with real glamour, and as big a shock of hair as hers. And it dominated political life for months. It produced the only walkout resignation from a cabinet meeting in modern times, indeed since 1903, and the only spontaneous one ever. So what was it all about? The small storm of Westland gave early notice of the weaknesses that would eventually destroy the Thatcher government, though not for another five years. One was the divide throughout the Tory party about Britain's place in the world. Helicopters were, by the mid-80s, no longer a marginal defence issue. 
for projecting Western power in countries as far afield as Somalia, Bosnia and Iraq, they would be crucial. The new army mule hauling cannon over mountains, the new floating gunship. Supply an army's helicopters and you have a big hold over that country. United Technologies, the American company whose Sikorsky subsidiary built the Black Hawk helicopter, wanted control over part of Britain's defence industry. Alexander Haig, the US Secretary of State who had been so helpful during the Falklands War, was now back with his old company and called in his markers for the American bid. The Prime Minister, adopting a position of outward neutrality, would probably have favoured it anyway as further strengthening of the British-American alliance. But on the other side, supporting the European consortium of companies, were those who felt that the EU had to be able to stand alone in defence technology. Michael Heseltine and his business allies thought this was vital to preserve jobs and the cutting-edge science base. The United States must not be able to dictate prices and terms to Europe. So this was about where Britain stood, first with the US or first with the EU. It was a question which would grow steadily in importance through the 80s until, in the 90s, it tore the Conservative Party apart. The second issue thrown up by Westland mattered almost as much. It was the Thatcher style of government, which was more presidential and disdainful of her cabinet than that of any previous Prime Minister. We have already seen how she dispatched the wets who challenged her on economic policy. She would rage against, mock and browbeat ministers who were on her side too. Sir Geoffrey Howe, in particular, had a miserable time from her tongue lashings. The satirical television puppet show Spitting Image began to dress their Thatcher figurine in trousers and summed up the popular perception in a sketch showing her lunching with her ministers. She orders her beef, asked by the waiter, What about the vegetables? Her puppet snarls, They'll have the same. Rather more seriously, in the real world, she was conducting more and more business in small committees or bilaterally with one minister at a time, ensuring her near-absolute dominance. A small clique of advisers assumed more significance than the ministers with their grand offices and titles. Later, just before her fall, Nigel Lawson would conclude that she was taking her personal economic adviser, Sir Alan Walters, more seriously than she was taking him, her Chancellor of the Exchequer. Throughout it all, she was using her beloved press officer, Bernard Ingham, to cut down to size any ministers she had taken against, using the then-anonymous lobby system for Westminster journalists to spread the message. In her memoirs, she portrays Heseltine as a vain, ambitious and unprincipled man who flouted cabinet responsibility. The Westland crisis, in her view, was simply about his psychological flaws. Ingham, in his memoirs, angrily defends himself against improper briefing. Yet there are too many other witnesses who found the Thatcher style more like a Renaissance court than a traditional cabinet, a place which demanded absolute loyalty and was infested with favourites. It would destroy her, as it would cripple new labour, this way of ruling. But in the mid-80s it was a new phenomenon, and to ministers on the receiving end, freshly humiliating. And if there was one minister unlikely to take such treatment for long, it was Michael Heseltine. He was the only serious rival as darling of the party and media star in the glory days of Thatcherism. Handsome, glamorous, rich, and an excellent public speaker, he was popularly known as Tarzan. The story was told about him by his fellow Tory MP, friend and biographer Julian Critchley, that at Oxford he had mapped out his future career on the back of an envelope, running through the need to make a fortune, marry well, enter Parliament, and then 1990s Prime Minister. Though Heseltine said he could not remember doing this, it was in character. As a young man, he had flung himself into the characteristic 60s businesses of property investment and magazine publishing, coming close to bankruptcy before handing his worldly goods to his bank manager and slowly turning his companies round. A passionate anti-socialist, he had won a reputation for hot-headedness since once picking up the mace, symbol of parliamentary authority, and waving it at the Labour benches during a Commons row about steel nationalisation. His speeches to Tory party conferences were music-hall extravaganzas, full of blonde hair-tossing, hilarious invective and fist-thwacks palm drama. So macho that he was almost camp, he was known for the swoop on Merseyside, already described, and for dressing up in army gear while taking on the female CND protesters of Greenham Common. As an experienced businessman with a relish for vehement anti-labour rhetoric, he was hardly a typical wet, 
and indeed agreed with Thatcher about much. But it was a more committed anti-racialist than her, and deeply in favour of the EU. She always regarded him as a serious and dangerous rival. The two biggest beasts of the Tory party in the 80s had been eyeing each other and quietly sharpening their claws under the cabinet table well before Westland. They went to war on behalf of the two rival bidders for Westland. She was livid that he was using his considerable leverage as defence secretary to warn the company's shareholders about the dangers of going with the Americans, potentially shutting out European business. She thought he was tipping the scales against Sikorsky, despite Westland's preference for them. Certainly, Hesseltine repeatedly made it clear the Ministry of Defence would not be buying their Black Hawk helicopter and did much to rally the European consortium. Thatcher, meanwhile, was deploying the public line that she was only interested in what was best for the shareholders while trying to make sure the Americans were kept in the race ahead of the Europeans. Eventually, she sought advice from the government law officers about whether Heseltine had been behaving properly. A private reply meant to weaken his case was leaked. Furious at this wholly improper act, which he suspected was the responsibility of Thatcher and Ingham, Heseltine demanded a full inquiry. During a meeting of cabinet, she counterattacked, trying to rein him in by ordering that all future statements on Westland must be cleared first by number 10. Hearing this attempt to gag him, Heseltine calmly got up from the cabinet table, announced that he must leave the government, walked by himself into the street, and told a startled solitary reporter that he had just resigned. The question of exactly who had leaked the Attorney General's legal advice in a misleadingly selective way to scupper Heseltine and the European bid then became critical. The leaking of the private advice broke the rules of Whitehall confidentiality, fairness and collective government. The instrument of the leak was a comparatively junior civil servant, the Trade Secretary Leon Britton's Head of Communications, Colette Bow. But who had told her to do this? Many assumed it was her boss, the number 10 press chief Bernard Ingham. He denied it. He had known she was going to leak the advice and had not ordered her to stop, which he later said he bitterly regretted. But the initiative, he said, had not come from him or Mrs. Thatcher. For her part, she said she had not known and would not have approved the leaking of the letter had she been asked. None of this matters, except that it nearly finished off the lady in her prime. After dramatic commons exchanges during which she seemed vulnerable to the charge of lying to the House, she pulled through. It was Britain who went for a comparatively trivial misstatement about another confidential letter, a scapegoat, said the opposition, which had singularly failed to get the glossy scalp they had hoped for. After the political row, there was a dirty and in some ways even more dramatic struggle for control of the company conducted in hotels and city boardrooms. Some of Thatcher's greatest business supporters, such as Rupert Murdoch, weighed in on the side of the American-led bid. Eventually, amid accusations of arm-twisting and dirty tricks, the Europeans were defeated and the company went to Sikorsky. The storm subsided. But it had revealed the costs of the new Thatcher style. Getting your way at all costs with foreign dictators and militant union leaders was one thing. Behaving similarly with senior politicians in your own party was another. Hesseltine later wrote, I saw many good people broken by the Downing Street machine. I had observed the techniques of character assassination, the drip, drip of carefully planted, unattributable sources that were fed into the public domain, as colleagues became marked as somehow semi-detached or not one of us. The great strength of Thatcher's way of governing was the way her self-certainty gave her administration and the country a surging sense of direction. Its weakness was it cut out so many others, ignored advice and humiliated anyone not seen as an uncritical supporter. Very Big Bang The city, with its huge bonuses and salaries, freshly sprouted glass towers, banks and merchants from across the world, is so familiar it can be taken for granted, as naturally British as the Jurassic Coast. Yet in the 50s, there would be no good reason for an observer to believe that the sleepy world of the London Stock Exchange, the venerable merchant banks and the rest would become a global success story, while British car manufacturing, for instance, with its splendid variety of models and its famous names, would wither to nothing. 
The great days of the city had been a lifetime earlier, in the heady financial markets before the First World War, when sterling was a dominant world currency. Loans and bonds sluiced freely round the world, and Britain was a great creditor nation. After the Second World War, the pound was under almost constant pressure. The dollar was king. Post-war exchange controls hobbled any chance of big overseas deals, and Britain was a big global debtor. The wizened traditions of money remained: the obscure hierarchies, the bowler hats, the rigid division between brokers and jobbers, the long lunches and coal fires, and the exotic titles of firms that had risen in the days of Queen Victoria, engraved on nameplates between the bombed-out squares. But the city was no longer buccaneering. In the age of Macmillan and Wilson, its grandees were forced to concentrate on humble domestic business and the modest trade of the unwinding empire, occasionally pootling along to their masters at the Bank of England to lobby for a loosening of regulations, fruitlessly. Magazines and films still exploited the image of the crisp young banker with a furled brolly and bowler hat. But in truth, the square mile was becoming part of heritage Britain. Its declining firms, like the cashless Palladian houses of Oxfordshire, in which grumpy men with famous names stamped their feet against the cold and mentally apologised to Grandpapa, perhaps it was inevitable. Historically, financial clout had run alongside commercial and political power. A weak Britain meant a weak pound and a weak city. In the forties, fifties, and sixties, the golden age of the great U.S. dollar. It was as obvious that New York would replace the Square Mile as it was equally obvious that the U.S. fleet would take over from the Royal Navy. That it did not happen was the result of paranoia and bad judgment far away from London, exploited by bright British financiers. At the height of the Cold War, Moscow and her satrapies declined to let wicked capitalist New York look after their dollars. These dollars ended up instead in apparently less wicked London. And were used from 1957 by a few far-seeing British banks to finance overseas trade in the capital-hungry post-war world. If you are not allowed to fund the world with homegrown pounds, why not do it with other people's dollars? The boss of the Bank of London and South America, Sir George Bolton, was heard in clubs and boardrooms loudly asking why London, with her expertise, should not jump into a new age of world capitalism. London's second opening came thanks to New York itself. Since the war, American bankers had been enjoying the easy pickings from loans to other countries and overseas investors. They were lazily uninterested in the secondary market in such loans. By the early 60s, the ballooning U.S. balance of payments deficit turned the mood in Washington against loans to overseas customers in general. In 1963, President Kennedy worsened Wall Street's position dramatically with a new tax on Americans buying foreign stocks from foreigners. With New York cut off from a surging new international business, London moved in. The first such euro-dollar loans were negotiated in 1963 between the British merchant banks Warburgs and Samuel Montague on the one hand, and an Italian state-owned steelmaker and the Belgian government on the other. To avoid British regulations and taxes, deals were done in Holland's Schiphol Airport and Luxembourg. Warburgs dodged and hopped around endless obstacles until, at the end, they found there was no one to print the new bonds to the high pre-war standards demanded by the London Stock Exchange. At the last moment, the playing card manufacturers De La Rue found two very old Czech engravers who were brought out of retirement to do the job. Dollar loans by Hambros for hydroelectric schemes in Norway and by a group of merchant banks from the Austrian government quickly followed. Then a spate of loans for the Japanese, and a new world suddenly opened up for the beaten-up old city of London. Pipelines across the Alps, American oil refineries and exploratory ventures, Japanese office buildings, early computer factories—all would be financed from London, just as in the days of Edwardian finance. As overseas bankers realised what was happening, they began to converge on London for some of the action. European banks were already present. But the big four finance houses in Tokyo opened London offices, and so too did the big names on Wall Street. Citibank, Chase Manhattan, Merrill Lynch, and Nomura were all there, taking traditional British business as well as trading in the euro-dollar markets. The influence of the euro-dollar and euro-bond market on the culture of the city, and by extension British business life generally, can hardly be overstated. 
From the early 60s, it was internationalising and shaking up London, introducing more aggression, fatter salaries and less of the old school tie. Harold Wilson might complain about sinister international financiers. The traditionalists of the stock exchange and the older banks might hint at sharp practice and unsavoury deals. But the euro market thrived and grew, shrugging off the crash of 1974 and the Arab boycott of Jewish businesses alike. Just a whiff of the can-do, devil-may-care, Wild West spirit was suddenly felt again in the streets of old London. Only in the side streets, however. For most investors, the world of controls still applied. Sir Nicholas Goodison, later chairman of the Stock Exchange in the Thatcher years, looked back on the mood by the late 70s. We still had exchange controls, we had a Labour government intent on controlling everything and no freedom of capital movement. British people were not allowed to take capital abroad. British institutions weren't allowed to invest capital abroad, except by special treasury permissions. We were an insulated market. It was this world which was swept away on the 23rd of October 1979, when Geoffrey Howe, to general shock, abolished exchange controls. Despite what she later said, Thatcher was wobbly and uncertain about the gamble. Howe himself likened it to walking off a cliff to see what happened. Bankers noted that there was no planning for this revolution. Tony Benn said it showed that international capitalism had finally defeated democracy. What is certainly clear is that abolishing exchange controls made it inevitable that the core of the old city would be exposed to the cultural revolution that the euro-dollar market makers had already enjoyed in the side streets. The smaller merchant banks, Anthony Gibbs, Kieser Ullman and others, were already disappearing. Even the biggest London merchant banks, such as Kleinwork Benson, had profits of little more than a tenth of Japan's Nomura and a seventh of Wall Street's Merrill Lynch. For the huddled world of the traditional city, it was suddenly a choice between looking for big protective overseas partners or struggling to survive alone. In 1982, another slice of American business life came to London in the multicoloured jackets and raucous bear pit atmosphere of the new international financial futures market or life. Here the high-risk bets were made on the future value of commodities and currencies in one of the older buildings of the city, the Royal Exchange. Inside its elegant shell roared an atmosphere borrowed straight from Chicago, likened by startled observers at the time to an ill-bred casino. Life would turn out to be very profitable for the traders, the raucous barrow boys pumped up on booze, cocaine and fear of failure, who became such an emblem of 80s life, many retiring exhausted and vastly rich by their early 30s. It would also be the scene of broken dreams. It was in the derivatives market that Old Bearings Bank, one of the grander names of the traditional city, lost its money and died. And so to the next question for the city. For how long could the traditional distinction between brokers, dealing with the public, and the jobbers, or wholesalers, dealing only with stockbrokers, be maintained. It had been seen as an essential barrier to protect the public, as important for the city as the division between barrister and solicitor was in English law courts. Yet in these new markets it was barely recognised. The new Chancellor after the 1983 election, Nigel Lawson, a former financial journalist, and the new Trade Secretary, Cecil Parkinson, decided to do a deal with the increasingly archaic-looking stock exchange. It was struggling with a long and wearisome court case brought by the Office of Fair Trading. The ministers promised the legal action would be dropped if the stock exchange reformed itself. This was the final piece of action which led to the big bang of city deregulation, something which has a claim to be the single most significant change of the whole Thatcher era, on a par with confronting the unions or privatisation. The situation in 1983-84 to could be compared to an old market town high street with its long-established specialist shops, the fishmonger and the drapers, old Mr. Bunn at the bakery and Miss Manila, the trusted postmistress, at just the moment when a huge new retail park opens on the outskirts. The supermarkets in it are the international financial service companies and the global trading banks offering every financial service under one roof. Chase Manhattan and Merrill Lynch here play the role of Tesco and Walmart. The high street shops are the city firms, small and specialised, but without the financial clout and scale to compete. What do they do? Some doggedly hang on, 
hoping their name, expertise and traditional customer base will see them through. Others negotiate with the supermarkets, trying to find a space under the roof to carry on trading. Others frantically merge, creating newer, bigger high street retailers. This is what happened in the city when it became clear that the old rules were about to be abolished. During the winter of 1983-84, jobbers, brokers and bankers began to merge in an unprecedented explosion of defensive alliances. Old merchant banks opened talks with the US megabanks. Scores of ancient names disappeared or were compressed into new assemblages of initials. In family firms such as N.M. Rothschild and Bearings, there were family fights with sons and brothers going different ways. The streets echoed to the sound of cultures clashing. Cricket and baseball were at war on the same pitch. With a new market for shares in smaller, riskier companies, the unlisted securities market, and the creation of a new joint index of the shares of the hundred biggest companies on the stock exchange, the FTSE 100, or FTSE, there was a revolutionary mood in the air, a frenzy of optimism and activity which roared through 1984. Many noted the contrast with the devastation of Britain's coal mining industry as the strike dragged on during just the same time. Across the city, big, gleaming new dealing rooms were unveiled, filled with computers, edged with glass and marble. Paintings of venerable Jewish patriarchs from Edwardian days were rehung in bland new surroundings. Minimum commissions, bedrock of the old cartel, went overnight. Outsiders were at last ushered into the Temple of Temples, the stock exchange itself. And then, on the 27th of October 1986, this London stock exchange ceased to exist as the institution it had formerly been. Its makeover made it all but unrecognisable. The new screen-quoted system, SIAC, finally came on stream, the moment remembered as the Big Bang itself. A few months later, the physical floor of the stock exchange, once heaving with life, was almost desolate as the deals were made by computer screen and phone. Scandals, shocks, crashes would follow, but as the spring and summer of 1987 arrived, it was clear there would never be any way back to the cosy, particular, tradition-hallowed old high street of London City a few years before. Twenty years on, share deals which had taken a quarter of an hour or longer to process were completed in a few seconds. The markets were opening two and a half hours earlier each morning and closing a couple of hours later. The volume of trading was 15 times higher than it had been in the early 80s. A country which had exported £2 billion of financial services a year before the Big Bang was exporting 12 times that amount. With only 330,000 people working there in city jobs, it was supporting the entire country's overseas account. Though the city brought a super-rich class to Britain, whose vast salaries and staggering annual bonuses made a good swathe of the middle class feel ill over their breakfast newspapers when they were reported each year, and which pushed the more beautiful, well-placed and prestigious homes out of reach of hospital consultants, criminal lawyers, head teachers and diplomats, the truth is that without the Big Bang, Britain's books would be in much worse condition. For millions of ordinary Britons who had only the haziest idea about the world of finance, the revolution in lending to buy their houses was as big a shock. Until the early 80s, most people's experience of getting a mortgage involved a barrage of suspicious questions from a building society manager, followed by a long wait, for the loans were rationed, and eventually followed by a mortgage whose cost was fixed by the Building Societies Association. Generally speaking, the size of the low-cost loan, funded by deposits from building society members, would be limited to two and a half times the would-be homeowner's annual salary. But by 1983, the ordinary clearing banks were muscling in on the business, and this cartel began to go too. American and other mortgage lenders offered better deals. As Nigel Lawson later wrote, this happened in the new deregulated world in which direct credit controls were out of the question and the only checks on excess were the price of credit, which the government remained able to control, it cannot do so now, and prudence, which it cannot. Three years later, he responded to the clamour of building societies who felt unfairly hampered by their old status. He freed them to raise money in the capital markets, issue checkbooks and check guarantee cards, make other loans and indeed behave almost like banks. He also allowed them to convert themselves into banks if they got a sufficiently large majority of their members to agree. This duly happened, beginning with the Abbey National. 
The effect of this was to suddenly take the break off mortgage lending and to upend the old power relationship. Before, would-be borrowers limped along to the local building society and patiently endured many obstacles before they were allowed a mortgage. Now the building societies and banks started to ingratiate themselves with the public, thrusting credit at them. It became a good thing, a virtuous thing, to be a big-time borrower. People found themselves harangued in advertisements and junk mail to borrow more, to defect from one bank to another, to extend the mortgage rather than paying it off. The old rules about the maximum proportion of income began to dissolve. Four times income began to be acceptable in some cases. House prices began to rise accordingly. Today, the average cost of a house in Britain is rising towards five times average income. In many cases, banks and building societies began to lend people more than the total value of the house they were buying. The extra helped fuel a more general high street splurge. The old system of checking people's real financial status went out of the window. During 1986-88, a borrowing frenzy gripped the country, egged on by swaggering speeches about Britain's economic miracle from the Chancellor and Prime Minister. The abolition of mortgage tax relief saw a rush of borrowing to meet the deadline. Lawson, not a man to underrate his achievements, acknowledged a critic who said, My real mistake as Chancellor was to create a climate of optimism that, in the end, encouraged borrowers to borrow more than they should and lenders to lend more than they should. All this would end in tears with the bust that followed, and would be used for many years afterwards by Labour's Gordon Brown as evidence of the Tory boom-and-bust policies. But it was the consequence of a decisive break in the financial regulations governing city and everyday life which changed Britain, probably forever. It felt heady and exhilarating to millions. It was like getting properly drunk for the first time. The Big Bang itself was thus only a moment in a longer process, rooted in the euro-dollar market of the 60s and given its most dramatic kick by Geoffrey Howe's abolition of exchange controls, followed by the deregulation of lending. It meant that Britain, for the first time in her history, and entirely willingly, gave up control over financial dealings done from her soil, except as a neutral regulator. The state lost control over credit. In return, the city gained a huge quantity of international financial business, the profits dripping down from some of the biggest deals in the world which might otherwise have gone to Berlin, Tokyo, or, more likely, New York. The end of the age of controls and nationalistic finance meant also that British manufacturing lost any hope of the kind of long-term banking arrangements that German and French rivals had enjoyed. The asset-stripping habit, buying companies, dismantling them into component parts and selling them on, had become a controversial part of British business life in the 70s. The 80s financial revolution ensured it would remain so. There would be no room for old connections or long-term thinking in the new world. For politics, the freeing of the city gave Margaret Thatcher and her ministers an entirely loyal and secure base of rich, articulate supporters who helped see her through some rough times. Rothschilds and other banks would spread the get-rich-quick prospect to millions of people in Britain through the privatisation issues, and the country would, for a time, come closer to the share-owning democracy Thatcher dreamed of. But all this came at a price. The crude and swaggering, loads of money, years, satirised by the comedian Harry Enfield, and the culture of excess and conspicuous display that would percolate from the city through London, then the home counties, then much of southern England. For one generally sympathetic observer of the city in the mid-80s, it was worryingly infected with hype. Febrile, driven by greed, pushing back the boundaries of acceptable behaviour, this was a brief, intense phase that in some ways was a rerun of the late 1920s, this time with added attitude. Sid Gets Lucky, The Privatisation Years there is a popular belief that the Thatcher governments never really intended to privatise very much, and that they stumbled upon an easy way of raising cash by selling off assets almost by accident. If so, it was one heck of a stumble. During the decade, £29 billion was raised in sales of land and businesses, and £18 billion from the sale to their tenants of 1.24 million council homes. 
The gas that cooked meals and warmed houses, oil coming ashore, aircraft taking businessmen and holidaymakers, and the airports they flew from, the phones and phone lines used to communicate, cars, engines, steel, and the water pipes and filtration systems bringing the British their baths and tea, all would be affected by the greatest shift of assets from the state to private companies and individuals in the history of this country. By the 1992 election, 46 businesses had left the public sector, carrying with them 900,000 people. The notion that this was accidental is wrong. The Conservatives had promised to sell off council houses to their tenants from the mid 70s. Privatisation of state corporations had not featured much in the 1979 manifesto, only because the party's plans were still sketchy, and partly because its leader did not want to scare off the voters. But Privatisation had been long discussed on the right. In his first budget speech, Howe said he wanted to reduce the size of the public sector, that the scope for the scale of assets is substantial, and that this was an essential part of our long-term program. So it would prove. One of the influential economic writers about the Thatcher years said that coining the word privatisation was a masterstroke of public relations by the government, which put it into worldwide circulation. Privatisation would become the major idea exported from Britain in modern times, though, as it happens, the word was not one Mrs. Thatcher liked or much used. Denationalisation was even uglier, however, and inaccurate, since some of the corporations and assets sold had never been nationalised in the first place. It started tentatively with small steps in 1981 to 82, including shares in BP, the scientific corporation Amersham, half of Cable and Wireless, and then the British National Oil Corporation, discussed elsewhere. The motives were mixed. Early on, with a horrendous public sector borrowing requirement to fund, simply raising cash was important. Yet this was neither the origin of the idea nor its real point. Howe and Lawson were making clear from 1980 onwards that creating a large bulwark of new shareholders was essential to the Tories' political vision. Lawson would cite the fears of extending voting in the 19th century, allowing political power to people who had no stake in the country. But the remedy is not to restrict the franchise to those who own property; it is to extend the ownership of property to the largest possible majority of those who have the vote. The widespread ownership of private property is crucial to the survival of freedom and democracy. Another way of putting it was that this was one part of the one-way ratchet pulling Britain away from socialism. If Labour had been accused of creating a giant state sector whose employees depended on high public spending and could therefore be expected to become loyal Labour voting fodder, Then the Tories were intent on creating a property-owning democracy of voters whose interests were entirely different. The despair of Labour politicians as they watched it working was obvious. There was now to be a large and immovably pro-private sector Britain of share owners and home owners, probably working in private companies and increasingly un-unionised. The cost of renationalising the industries made Labour pledges about it increasingly hollow. Twenty years later, the idea of reversing privatisation is something discussed only on the very margins of politics. The proportion of adults holding shares rose from seven percent when Labour left office to twenty-five percent when Thatcher did. Thanks to the right to buy policy, more than a million families purchased their council houses, repainting and refurbishing them, and watching their value shoot up. Particularly since they had been sold them at a discount of between thirty-three and fifty percent. The proportion of owner-occupied homes rose from 55% of the total in 1979 to 67% a decade later, and people did indeed become much wealthier overall during the Tory years. In real terms, total personal wealth rose by 80% in the 80s, entirely changing the terms of trade of ordinary politics. Old Labour was killed off not in the Commons, but in the shopping centre and the estate agent's office. Yet, if we look a little below the surface, the story is more blurred. Of that huge rise in wealth, relatively little was accounted for by shares. An increase in earnings and the first house price boom were much more important. And the boom in shareholding was fuelled more by the prospect of a bargain than by any deep change in culture.
Clearly, there was always a potential conflict between the government's need to raise money quickly and its hopes of spreading share ownership. Both of them intensely political, since the former affected tax levels and the latter the size of the property-holding electorate. Again and again, from the grossly undervalued Amersham sale to the later and greater privatisations, ministers erred on the size of getting the maximum spread of ownership rather than the maximum price. The breakthrough privatisation was that of 52% of British Telecom in November 1984, which raised an unheard of £3.9 billion. It was the first to be accompanied by a ballyhoo of television and press advertising. It was easily oversubscribed. In the event, two million people, or 5% of the adult population, bought BT shares, almost doubling the number of people who own shares in a single day. After this came British gas. Natural gas fields had been supplying Britain from the North Sea since the late 60s, pumping ashore at Yarmouth and Hull, and replacing the old town gas system of coal-produced gas, which had long given so many neighbourhoods their distinctive architecture and smell. With its national pipe network and showrooms, it had become the country's favourite source of domestic energy and was, in most respects, a straightforwardly monopolistic business. Its chairman, Sir Dennis Rook, fought a riotously aggressive private campaign to avoid British gas being broken up before the sale and was successful. Again, the government and its advisers prepared for the sale with a TV campaign featuring an anonymous neighbour who had to be kept away from a good thing, Don't Tell Sid. And then, when the issue details were finally announced, Tell Sid. This raised £5.4 billion, the biggest single privatisation of all. Yet there was something about the very name that fell oddly on the ear. Does Sid perhaps have a half-echo of Spiv? Was someone in the advertising team subconsciously sending a message? For the truth was that the huge oversubscribing of shares reflected a general and accurate belief that something was being given away for nothing, that this was a one-way bet. Sid knew which side his bread was buttered on, but this did not necessarily make him a kitchen capitalist. With the equally bargain-price shares offered to members of building societies such as Abbey National when they demutualized and turned themselves into banks, Britain developed a thank-you-very-much class of one-off shareholders. In the early years of the 21st century, the Office of National Statistics looked back at the privatisation story and found that the proportion of stock market wealth held by private shareholders had fallen from 20% in 1994 to 14%. Many shareholders, they said, have clearly subsequently disposed of their holdings rather than becoming long-term stock market investors, as was once hoped. Of the 22% of adults holding stocks or shares, more than half only had their old privatisation or building society ones. The UK Shareholders Association concluded that there are an enormous number of shareholders in the UK, about 10 million perhaps, but the vast majority hold only a few shares, and many of those will have come from privatisations, demutualisations or former employments. Such shares are rarely traded. The failure to get a shareholding democracy properly rooted, despite endless Treasury initiatives to nurture it, is a more telling criticism of privatisation than the one most commonly heard at the time, which was that the assets were being sold off too cheaply. They were, to the tune in total of some £2.5 billion, according to the National Audit Office. But in part, this was deliberate. Wider share ownership was an important policy objective, and we were prepared to pay a price for it, said Lawson. Second, as the government and its advisers learned from each privatisation, the pricing grew shrewder. Third, the price critics would not have sold the companies anyway. What the stultified share ownership pattern showed was that below the level of political rhetoric, there were limits to the Thatcher revolution. The other great question is whether privatisation increased the efficiency and responsiveness of the corporations being sold. This was supposed to happen not because public sector managers were inherently lazy, but because they lacked the spur and whip of a stock market price and the possibility of going out of business. Yet the impetus of being in the private sector would be much less if the business was still a monopoly. The most successful privatisations in that sense were the ones where the company was pushed instantly into full competition, as British Airways was, or Rolls-Royce, or British Aerospace. 
but the utilities, gas, electricity, water, were always different. It was hard to envisage rival North Sea natural gas companies competing in every part of the country with their own system of pipes and storage. It was hard to imagine many different energy companies with their own grids. Yet, without competition, where would the efficiency gains come from? The technical and political argument behind these privatizations was how to break up the state monopolies to create competition without infuriating and discommoding the consumer. In the heyday of the Thatcher privatizations, it was more common for public corporations to be sold as single entities than broken up. British Telecom made the case that to compete in international markets, it must stay as a single unit, able to make the big investments needed for the telecommunications revolution. British Gas, under its pugnacious boss, managed to play the Whitehall power game sufficiently well to stay single. The water and electricity industries were split up, but to create local monopolies, with power generation being split into just two mega companies: National Power and Power Gen. The railway industry would prove one of the most intellectually demanding and least successful of all, though this story comes later. In essence, what ministers did was to replace competition by regulation. And the growth of new public bodies such as the National Rivers Authority, Ofttel, Ofcom, Ofgas, Ofwat were all given detailed targets and penalty systems to oversee the newly privatised utilities. Only much later would some of them, such as British Gas, be further broken up in the private sector, generally by government diktat through new competition policies and exposed to more realistic market pressures. Soon, foreign firms would begin to move in and buy up the fragmented privatised utilities. Causing remarkably little public protest, except when years of poor investment or management meant a service was patently failing, such as the leaking pipe systems of German-owned Thames Water. Politicians learned two things. The first was that outside the Westminster village, few British people seemed to care at all who owned the companies and services they depended on, so long as the service was acceptable. This was becoming a much less ideological country. The second thing they learned was that politics could not step back and wash its hands of what the privatised companies then did. Ministers, not simply chief executives, would still be the target of public anger and held responsible for any failings. This was becoming a more aggressively consumerist country. The result was that while hundreds of thousands of employees left the public sector to work for newly private corporations. The state grew in other ways through the quangos, regulatory bodies, and bureaucrats now found necessary to regulate and oversee the privatized services. End of disc sixteen.